This is Aliens and Artists, episode 10, part two of our talk with Christopher O'Brien. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. I want to circle back to something that came up in part one of our talk. Why is it you were never allowed to hear what happened in the regression session conducted when you were young? Well, here's this is interesting. The first licensed hypnotherapist, psychologist who was licensed to do hypnotherapy in the United States was Dr. Ivar Berkland. His son, Buzzy Berkland, was the chief orthopedic uh, surgeon for the U.S. ski team all through the 60s into the 70s. And the grandson, Bob Berkland, was uh, I played uh, was on my soccer team for 10 years. Uh, so I was very close to the family. And, and Ivar was. Uh, um, was this old old guy uh, had a you know a Danish or Swedish accent, so he kind of sounded like Doctor Freud. You know, he he coined of oh, this you know this you know European accent. So I was really difficult to teach as a child, as you can imagine. Uh, I, I was teachers really didn't like me because I totally challenged them. I would stay at home and study and, and uh, do research and stuff and come back and totally blow their simplistic explanations out of the water. What about this? What about this? They, you know, they, they just didn't know what to do with me. So they let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. As long as I kept my mouth shut, that was a real, that was a terror. Um, and so that being the case, uh, a couple of teachers kind of had an attitude with me and, and were giving me bad grades, uh, uh, even though I, you know, I was a straight A student all the way through uh, all my classes into college. Um, got a scholarship to Columbia and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so she thought that it would be good for me to get some um, motivational work done on me um, to calm me down and then to um, hypnotically instill, uh, you know, scholastic motivation. That's the excuse that I was given to take me all the way into Seattle to the, to Ivor Berkland's office and then get hypnotically regressed so that he would give me positive reinforcement as, as, as a motivational tool, uh, to have me, you know, be a normal little kid and, and, you know, do normal kid things and learn. Uh, I was just, you know, I was, my brother and I were just freaking holy terrors, man. It's no wonder I got my ass kicked so many times by my dad. Uh, I was just, you know, I was off the fucking walls. Um, and so she took me there and I remember this real distinctly. I was uh, just turned 13 and, um, on the couch and he did his you know his his dr freud voice and with a, a whirling uh one of those whirling disc things and uh he, he hypnotized me he really did the only time i've ever been hypnotized uh other people have tried and um you know i don't know what happened somehow my mom was involved when it started, he was the only one in the room with me, but it was obvious later on that she was in there as well. She came in after I was, uh, you know, taken under. And uh, I this was supposed to be the start of a series of sessions, but that was the only time I went. She said, no, we're not, we're not doing that anymore. And he had, had an old wall and sack tape recorder, reel-to-reel tape recorder, and he taped the session. And, um, you know, he, he, we had talked about it and I said, well, I can't wait to, you know, I was really interested, uh, in the process and I, I couldn't wait to, to hear it. And he says, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting for you. I, I you know, yeah, well, you know, I'll, obviously we, you, you can hear it later. And, um, I wasn't allowed to hear it. Uh, she said she, she refused to talk about it. I said, well, did you hear the tape? Yeah. I said, well, why can't I hear it? Nope. There's no need for you to hear it. I said, well, maybe when we go back the next time, there, there's not going to be a next time. And I did get out of her that at one point she wanted to know more about my past before I was adopted. And so they may have regressed me back uh, 
and found out something, or she may have wanted to know about the event that happened to me, you know, when I was six. Uh, uh, so I don't know if that information, you know, this is totally, I'm, I'm totally guessing here. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, I was never allowed to go back there again, even though I was supposed to, I was scheduled to have a series of, um, of sessions. Uh, and, um, uh, he died shortly after, so uh, he was pretty old. He was, uh, I think, just turned 70, uh, and this would have been, let's see, uh, 70, I think, or 69. Would you want to know if you could somehow get access to that? Would you want to know? Yeah, I, I, I would. I, You know, I've, I've never tried, but I'll bet you that. Uh, okay. Well, he was he was a big deal. I mean, look him up, Ivar Berkland Senior. <laughs> he's a real he's a real guy. That would be a tough thing for me to shake. Yeah. Well, I I just it's it's kind of like you know a lot of this stuff. I really didn't want to know. Uh, you know, I I really didn't. Uh, I was having so much problems with uh, with physical abuse in the house. Uh, uh, yeah, I left home. You know, I, I remanded myself back into state care when I was 15 and had to go to court to uh, legally separate myself from my adopted parents. I've been on my own since I was 15. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on. And right after that, right after the um, within the next year, my brother was taken away in handcuffs because he just couldn't he couldn't deal with the uh, the abuse. And plus, he was tripping his ass off on acid and couldn't handle it, and was dealing uh, acid, and you know, when he was eleven, <laughs> he's he's amazing. Uh, he 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 turned me on when I was twelve, and then he was eleven. <laughs> yeah, I almost tripped in the sixties. My first trip was in February seventy. <laughs> right on the cusp. Yeah. Has your work as an artist been important in regards to these phenomena and your work in the field? Or did that feel like an independent line in your life? Have they woven together or not? Yeah. Yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't equate uh, any of my artistic inclinations uh, and abilities and um, motivations um, are totally separate from any of that stuff, at least as far as I can tell consciously. Um, I, I don't feel compelled to draw pictures of aliens or, you know, like some people do, they'll just become obsessed. And, and one of the outlets that many of contactees have is doing sculptures, doing uh, drawings, uh, paintings, that sort of thing. No, not at all. Uh, I did write a song once called Alien Angel, which... Uh, was recorded on my um, Laughing Buddha album. Would uh, it be okay if we put some of that in the show? Which, sure. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's, uh, let's see, somewhere far on the edge of Orion, caught up above in the deep blue sea, um, stung by the force of emotional power. Nobody knows the secret she keeps. Alien angel, she's my friend, alien angel. Um, iron exciter, magnetic provider, the final survivor. Um I'd have to think a little bit for the second and third verse. <laughs> Some artists, their contact experiences become this eclipsing event, which their creativity metabolizes for the rest of their life. And then you get others like Bud Hopkins, who's always fascinated me. He seems yeah. to have completely kept his painting life partitioned from his work in abductions. He did. He did. It's not that I think there's a right or a wrong way to go about it. But looking at, say, Peter Robbins, who worked closely with Bud, Peter 
Robbins fascinates me because he was on track to have this great career as a fine artist, and his contact experience with his sister stopped him dead in his tracks. It's really only now that he's contemplating making art again, picking up where he left off, perhaps. Right, picking up where he left off. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. How, and funnily, funny enough, he should become like the right-hand man of another artist who is still continuing his art, but it has nothing to do with his, his experiences. So it's it, poor Peter. I, I know Peter pretty well. In fact, he lives a bit less than an hour away from me. Um, and and it, <laughs> I just, it must have been really, uh, I would I would have been frustrated as hell watching someone that you're helping out, like you're, you're there their their boy friday and he's going on and still doing all you know his his artistic life and you're sub, you know sub, sublimating your life uh to help him out and forgetting your own creative outlet that's i don't know how he did it it's an acutely painful story we're going to try and tell his story in this podcast it's even more bizarre when you consider his sister's career as well. Yeah. She was a rock icon in New York. Helen yeah. Wheels was her stage name. And he had his sister thriving as an artist. And then yeah. there's Bud who Right. And then and then he does this this wonderful book that that, that is like a uh you know a, a mainstay in the field. And then he has to freaking totally backtrack and say, I, I you know, I gotta disavow Larry Warren, the, the guy that the books but I oh poor guy. And and he is the nicest, he's the nicest guy. The biggest sweetheart that I know in the entire field, there's no one that I respect and have fondness for more than Peter Roberts. He's he's a sweetheart. He, he doesn't have a mean bone and even a molecule in his body. Jesus. Peter has tremendous integrity, which is doubly bizarre on the Warren thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's it's just tragic, really. Some people are just fated that way, I guess. <laughs> Even though I don't believe in fate. <laughs> Jeez. I'm fascinated to see what happens now that he is considering making art again. Bud Hopkins, I didn't know, never met him. I don't know if it's true or not, but to me, he seemed almost stubbornly to not allow those realms to intersect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So did I. Actually, I I had uh, one of the top pop metal uh, rock bands in the the whole Rocky Mountains all during the time period of writing uh, that first book. Um, I was running around doing investigations, working construction, and writing uh, that first book, and um, totally compartmentalized from from everything except when you know we'd be traveling to gigs and we'd all have freaking cool sightings. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, oh man, yeah, it's a couple times that was really cool. <laughs> How about your screenplay? I haven't read it, but well, I have two. One, uh, one I've, I've co, both I've co-written. The second one is even more intense. So uh, I'm still working on it. Uh, it's 13 years. Uh, we've been working on it. It's a story of um, a friend who I worked with uh, in New York in, in uh, the early 80s. And she had something really intense going on in her personal life, and she wouldn't tell me. And um, as it turns out, she found me in 2007 after I hadn't seen her in 20-plus years. Um, and she saw me on TV, tracked me down, and said, you're the person I need to tell this to. And she claimed that her high school sweetheart, who she married and spent 12 years with, was an alien. And uh, if anybody else had come to me with a story, I wouldn't have given them the time of day. I would have said, you need some serious help. But because I knew her and because I knew back then that she was going through some really intense stuff, and I, I just kind of psychically was picking up on something really strange. And, uh, um, you know, I, I read her cards. I read her cards a couple times. And, uh, uh, you know, I could just tell there was something really, you know, super uh, uh, strange going on with her. And then come to find out, uh, I was <laughs> picking up on on uh, just an amazing story. And so 
she's written a book that she's been working on for 20 years and she's finally finished it. And, and, um, and we're, we're, we've, uh, we're just putting the, the, the finishing touches on the screenplay, which has been through 15, 16 rewrites. Uh, so that's the other screenplay. Whoa. Whoa. And so I don't want to give the story away, but what happened with that relationship? What became of that marriage? Um, he disappeared. He was uh, killed, brought back to life. He had his brains blown out and was brought back to life. And uh, they were only able to um, fix him to the level of an infant. So he was a grown man and uh, she had already separated with him and she wasn't involved with him. And then these guardians uh, who hadn't been around for a while showed up out of nowhere and said, you know, you're the only one that can really help him. Uh, would you spend a year and at least, uh, you know, help him out? And so she taught him how to, you know, toilet trained him, taught him how to walk, how to talk, um, and then bring him back. Uh, and he, he quickly was able to regain his uh, motor function. And uh, I don't think he ever really came back totally um uh, mentally and, and emotionally, but uh, uh, I mean, she she could feel the section of his skull. You know, she could put her finger in and feel the the bullet hole in his skull through the skin, and then she could feel the big, you know, tennis ball sized chunk of his skull that was gone, that it was slowly starting to knit together under the skin on the other side of his head. Um, just, just an amazing story. Just, I mean, I, does anyone know why he was attacked like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, it's it's all there. It's all there. <laughs> so you'll go out to the film world with that sometime in 2020 or 2021. Yeah, yeah. We've got uh, we've got some uh, some pokers in the fire, and then the other screenplay, uh, which I did in '98, was just too progressive for the for the time. I won. Uh, honorable mention in the uh, Southwest Screenwriters Guild contest. We uh, um, finished, I think, third out of 1,600, um, which was more of a fun thing, kind of a close encounters meets Indiana Jones meets uh, um, the Milagro Beanfield (laughs) war. uh, (laughs) Set set in Taos with a water war as a, you know, the, uh, a hot-to-trot young woman reporter who uh, stumbles on a bigger story than she was sent to cover. And, you know, it's really well-written, uh, but more of a PG kind of drama, but with, little, with comedic overtones. Do you feel that whereas with music, these realms were kept separate, hermetically sealed off, but more of your experience in life ends up in the screenplays. Is that fair? Yeah. The, fir- the first screen, yeah. The first screenplay was absolutely based loosely inspired by my work in the San Luis Valley. Absolutely. And it, it was written um, at the height of the, uh, of the activity that was going on there. I started writing it uh, in the end of 96 and um, all, all through 97. And it won the, uh, you know, that honorable mention in the uh, 98 uh, Southwest Screenwriters Guild contest. Is that one still something you're actively developing? No, it's, it. it you know, uh, when, when we wrote it, we had things in there like uh, robotic uh, uh, insects that would fly and, and with cameras and, and, and a, um, a robotic uh, cockroach that was used by the, the, you know, the, uh, the, computer genius kid inventor uh, was one of the characters and he would use that when they were they were spying on the underground base uh, uh, that the Air Force was using to uh, to use flying saucers to uh, to uh, bring in drugs uh, from Mexico and then uh, export heavy water for uh, nu- nuclear reactors around the world it's, it was a really progressive. Uh, screenplay politically uh, going into the Bush years. And uh, we just felt that uh, nobody would uh, would touch it. Uh, and now all those things are real. 
I mean, all the stuff that we were coming up with, you know, yeah. 25 years ago is now, you know, they have mosquitoes that fly around with cameras and shit. Uh, yeah. So um, a lot of it's passe. Some of the jokes are kind of stale. and um, it, It's really well done. I'll send you a copy of it if you want. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 fun. I would be remiss if I failed to ask about cattle mutilations. The work you've done in that regard is insuperable. Yeah. And I want to ask in an open-ended way, what has changed in the last 10 years? Well, number one, the writing the book uh, to me was really um, uh, the, the, probably the one single thing I'm most proud of. Um, there is no other realm in the paranormal that there's one book that is the only book that matters to, to encapsulate the entire subject. How many books are there on ghosts? How many books are there on UFOs? How many books are there on, uh, uh, you know, crypto creatures? How many books are there on, on uh, objective case histories that, that looks at the entire phenomenon objectively? How many are there in, in uh, the study of animal mutilations? One. And that's stock in the herd. So that fact alone, uh, nobody's picked up on that. Uh, I am so proud of that book. Uh, when I was done, it was 900 pages uh, I had, in small type, too, I might add. I had to take out 300 uh, to, to make it, you know. <laughs> My publisher, oh, this is funny, I digress. But uh, uh, he said, well, you know, what are you going to do about the cover? You know, I'd signed the deal. I hadn't even started writing the book. Um, although I've been, you know, researching it for 20 years at that point. And uh, he said, well, uh, how about the cover? And I said, well, geez, I got a great idea for one. So I did the cover and, uh, you know, it took me a day, not even. And uh, I sent it to him. He said, wow, this is great. I love it. And uh, the next day I was, you know, finishing up my research uh, you know, because I was going to start the book, you know, in a day or two, st actually start writing it. And all of a sudden, I see my freaking cover on the Internet. What? And, and I click on it, and it's <laughs> it goes to Amazon, and he's already pre-selling the book. <laughs> I mean, like a day or two later. And he says, the book is, it's how many pages, you know, it says pages, it's at 350. And I'm thinking... You know, and the price was nineteen ninety five, and I'm thinking, well, dude, you just fucked yourself, because you know the book is like, you know, it's a half a million words. You could use it as a doorstop. I mean, it's two pounds. It's huge, you know, and it it has to be that. You know, I I I, I collated twelve different databases into it, and and the reason why I'm so proud of it is I'm the only one that literally could have written it. Um, David Perkins may have been able to, but um, he's, he, he just doesn't have the, uh, the focus and the stick to and, and the time to just, you know, carve out to, to, to bang it out. Um, he was absolutely, you know, he's my mentor and, and editor and everything else, uh, you know, you know, not copy editor, but general editor and, and number one researcher, uh, I, I couldn't have done it without him, but, uh, and and we're doing a follow-up book that analyzes stalking the herd. Stalking the herd is all the data. Now we're writing a book analyzing all that data. Uh, in fact, I just talked to him before I talked to you. Uh, so <laughs> um, I, that, that's what I'm most proud of. Uh, there is no other book that will ever be written that can go into the 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 wit and depth of the phenomenon that this book does because I was the only one that had access to all the data uh, because I wasn't, you know, the only person I wasn't really, uh, or two people that I wasn't really uh, in good with was Linda Howe and Chuck Sikowski. Chuck Sikowski, I didn't need to be in good with him because he's, you know, I already knew all his cases and most of them were bogus. And Linda is just, you know, she's, if it ain't UFOs and aliens, you're a part of the problem. You're muddy in the waters, as she put it. So she's only looking at 5%, 10% of the data. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's intellectually dishonest. 
the, the you know every theory that you have has way more uh, evidence to negate it. So if you think it's aliens, well, I got some cases for you. And if you think it's the government, I've got some cases for you. If you think it's, uh, you know, predators and uh, scavenging, well, I've got a shitload of cases for you. Um, so basically, it's multiple groups uh, are involved, a minimum of three. Um, plus, there is something paranormal, supernatural. Uh, I think aliens is the least um viable explanation. I think we're dealing with some sort of unholy predator that um, has been living alongside of humans for eons, millennia, and is probably responsible for our ancient uh, practice of animal sacrifice. Um, I found the earliest documented waves of livestock mutilations in 1606 in, uh, during the reign of James I in England. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a monster, uh, <laughs> you know. It's not a very comforting conclusion, not a very consoling conclusion. No, no. It, it, well, it may be done for our benefit. Uh, it may be a warning to, to get us to stop using, utilizing cattle as, um, you know, as protein, uh, cattle are the most detrimental life force on the planet besides humans. Uh, you know, I could go down the litany of things that, uh, cattle are responsible for, uh, cattle in one year release more, uh, ozone depleting gas than the entire, you know, industrial age output of cars and trains and buses and planes. Uh, it's like a third, the amount of, uh, ozone depleting gases and, uh, you know, gases that um, contribute to global uh, to uh, global warming, climate change, largest uh, source of uh, the creation of deserts, largest uh, source of freshwater pollution, uh, the largest uh, with the main reason why we're cutting down the rainforest to make room for more cattle. Uh, some of the most detrimental diseases uh, it's cattle and bats. <laughs> I want to ask about this other thread among contactees being or becoming vegetarians. Do you feel like there's a connect point between those two? Um, potentially. I think, uh, yeah, especially looking at it from a Gaian imperative, sure. Uh, the raising of, 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 you know, animals for, as a protein source um, is detrimental for the planet. Uh, cattle are just a big one because they're bigger and they, uh, there's more of them. There's 1.5 billion cattle on the planet. But then when you start looking at, really start looking at the mutilation phenomenon, you know, there's one culture on this planet that, that worships cows. In fact, last week, they just passed a law, a minimum of 10 years uh, in, in prison for killing a cow in India. And those cow over there, those white cattle with the bumps on their backs and the, they all look the same, those are Brahma cattle. And uh, they're all over the planet. There's millions and millions and millions of them. Most of them live in India, but they export more cattle than any other country. Uh, and I have not found, check this out, I have not found one case of mutilation of cattle, of a Brahma cow, bull or steer. That is not one <sighs> case. Mind-blowing. Out of tens of thousands of cases, not one case. There's not one case in uh, India. <laughs> and there's not one case of a Brahma mutilated anywhere else. I mean, if that ain't a clue, I don't know what is. That is a screaming <laughs> salient clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and cattle mutilations, 99.9999999% of them happen in Christian countries. <laughs> Given that fact, how optimistic are you about some positive course that humanity can or will take? Does it seem hopeless? No, it's getting worse. No, what is what is one of the most uh, obvious signs of a country becoming affluent and becoming modern, uh, rising out of the third or second world into the first world, uh, for lack of a better description? Um, it is the ability to 
go to a restaurant and order a steak or go and have a hamburger. That's a sign of affluence and modernity is eating beef. Yeah. I mean, so the more countries become affluent and become sophisticated and become, uh, you know, develop an upper class and a middle class, um, the more beef is going to be required to satiate that that status symbol of being able to afford to eat beef, which is is just going to throw gasoline on the problem, you know, which is on fire already. Yeah. <laughs> so, for you personally, what effect has all this work had on your diet and or lifestyle? Well, I I, I must admit I, I love beef, but I don't eat very much of it. And when I do, it's organic, it's grass-fed, and it comes from my neighborhood. I do not eat industrialized beef protein, Mm. except pepperoni on pizza sometimes. (laughs) You used a term once, cases that curl your toes. Do you want to walk us through two or three that did that, that curled your toes, the ones that are still unsettling? Yeah, okay. Well, my my stock answer is out of 200 cases approximately that I investigated, 60 or so were real suspicious. Um, And out of those 60, there was eight, nine, maybe 10 that just, you know, curled my toes. It cannot be explained. Brains gone with no break into the cranium with the dura, the, the thin membrane of the brain still intact inside the skull in a dry brain case uh how about a um a spinal cord missing (laughs) when when the animal was autopsy there was no spinal cord Uh, what's wrong with that picture (laughs) another case that was uh that was kind of weird for a different reason was when the uh the pathologist or the the veterinary pathologist did a uh, a necropsy on on the cow uh he found that all the meat was cooked when he, when he, um, you know, went into the cow, all the meat was already cooked. Like it had been in a micro giant microwave oven. Just bizarre beyond words. I mean, you you could maybe explain that with, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, some sort of microwave experiment or, you know, weapons experiment or something, but uh, pretty, pretty unusual. Another case, uh, animal was found with the entire right side of its face, left side of its face, uh, opened up surgically and missing inside of a locked potato barn. What? <laughs> Just... Potato barns are like these, like, underground underground barns you know that uh you know usually are filled with tails after harvest they keep them underground uh, in the dark uh so they keep cool before they ship them and this thing for some reason ended up inside there mutilated and uh had a uh, uh it, the lock was still locked uh the case on the skinwalker ranch which uh um is still pretty much of a mind blower the rancher and his wife were in the pasture they had just checked on the, the mother and the baby. Uh, they went to the next mother and baby to check on it. And um, it was maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, broad daylight. And they came back and the, the calf they had just checked was mutilated, laid out on the ground. Not one drop of blood. A lot of uh, the front leg was gone. Um, they had a veterinary pathologist there uh, within on that same day. Uh, a real pathologist, somebody who's, that's his job, is, you know, finding out why an animal died. And they found both teeth marks, knife marks, and um, um, it appeared to be uh, cut open with a uh, uh, sharp implement. But they were in the same pasture, just a a few hundred yards away when the thing was mutilated in broad daylight. (laughs) That's a tough one to explain. It's just bizarre. Uh, <laughs> and that was really well well documented, too, I might add. There was a microbiologist, a veterinary pathologist, a uh, like some sort of crime scene investigator, a reporter. <laughs> I mean, they were all there. They got flown up by Robert Bigelow from, from Vegas in his private jet. 
You mentioned there are probably at least three players that are behind this phenomenon. Yeah. One being some kind of inexplicable paranormal intelligence. What, what would the other two be? Um, well, I think that there's um, obviously uh, competing government groups. I think there's something uh, having to do with the um, the consolidation of, uh, of of the beef industry. Uh, the beef the beef lobby in this country is the largest, most powerful lobby that you never hear about, unless you're Oprah and you uh, say on on your show you're not going to eat another hamburger ever again, and you're sued the next day for two billion dollars. Um, so I think the beef industry is, is, and some other quasi governmental, uh, institution that's, that's involved, that's probably monitoring the preternatural, the supernatural one. Um, and then the, the beef industry one is, is using, uh, mutilations as a terror tactic to, uh, chase small ranching operations out of business. Uh, those are the three. And I think the, uh, the the two human oriented groups uh, are taking their cue from the supernatural one. So when the initial cases happen, which are generally the high strange ones, then you have a flurry of cases, and there seems to be differing two different types, maybe three differing types, um, on top of that supernatural type. Um, that that appear, and they oftentimes there's red herring cases um, that seem to be done to try to draw law enforcement, you know, off the trail, off the scent. Uh, the the kind of uh, uh, red herring cases, if you will. And um, I think the main motivation for uh, the human cases are a an absolute you know, <laughs> fear, uh, horror, horror, fear <laughs> of mad cow disease, of prion disease breaking out in the food chain. Uh, I think, I think that's just absolutely, uh, it's, it's, it's paralyzing, uh, when they think about it. And I think that that's, uh, possibly what could be, um, one of the motivating factors because all this stuff started when prion disease uh, accidentally was loosed into the environment by the government. And um, Colm Kelleher, the, bi- the microbiologist who was on that weird case when the rancher was in and his wife were in the field, he, he was the uh, managing director for the National Institute of Discovery Sciences uh, or for Discovery Sciences. And he uh, he wrote a book called Brain Trust, which basically looked at that mad cow connection uh, in depth. And um, he was able to uncover some pretty interesting information about um, the possible weaponization of prion disease. Now, uh, Ted Oliphant, who was a police officer in Fife, Alabama, and investigated quite a number of cases there in the early 90s, uh, and myself, and uh, um, back in the late nineties, we were talking about, you know, the possible connection with mad cow disease. And then Comb Kelleher wrote a whole book about it that was totally ignored, ignored. Um, it's called brain trust. I really <laughs> highly recommend it. And, uh, that, that solidified my, my kind of, uh, suspicion that, uh, there was a connection there. And I'm pretty convinced that that is, uh, if, if not the main motivating, uh, you know, causal sort of factor uh, behind human perpetrated cases. Um, it's way up there. <laughs> Astonishing. Such a Rubik's Cube of factors you're putting together. You have no idea how, how difficult. All those years and cases to get to this nuanced take. Well, let's not forget the 100, 140 cases were unusual looking scavenger action that, that even fooled the rancher. Uh, in a lot of cases. So there are a lot of false positives, if you will, in, in, in this mystery. And that's why it's, it's a perfect opus, uh, what's called, uh, opus morandi. What's that word? Uh, uh, modus operandi. Modus operandi, because it, there's always this plausible deniability 
the only they, they usually only take the upside uh you know jaw uh incision or eye or ear i have cases where the lower the bottom one laying on the ground was done i have photographs uh, showing that um, but uh, I think it's the plausible deniability aspect uh, and the fact, you know, people say, why, why, don't, why do they leave them there? Uh, why don't they get their own cattle? They do. They get their own cattle. I have a really well-documented case from a whistleblower in the EPA, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency that uh, raised uh, sheep and, and other animals uh, and then, uh, you know, downwind from a Superfund site on the river, uh, Alamos River. And then he uh, ended up 90 days later taking them to the lab and mutilating them and found, you know, toxic levels of heavy metals in in the uh in the animals, and, and he says, well, we got to warn the farmers who are grazing their cattle around there. And the EPA said, no, you don't. We're not going to tell anybody. And he says, oh, yeah? And he uh, quit, sued him, and then did a whistleblower thing with Westwood Magazine. Uh, so the government does raise their own cattle and stuff. But if they leave them there, if, if they take them, let's put it this way, then it's grand theft. Then, then police get involved, official reports get filed, insurance claims are filed. But if they leave them there, then there's plausible deniability. And you also get to subjugate one of the more uh, patriotic and militia-oriented segments of our culture, the ranching community. You know, I mean, that's where a lot of your militia members are. Look at the Bundys in Nevada. Um, um, so why not, uh, you know, kind of use it as a terror tactic. <laughs> Do you feel like the paranormal component of it, I'm asking you to speculate here, I know, but do you feel like there's some features of this that call to mind missing 411 and David Pilates' work? Well, I, you know, I, we don't have any real, uh, a real data set that can connect the two, but it, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, I mean, in theory, it does make a lot of sense. Cattle hemoglobin is a virtual match to human hemoglobin. If you're a universal receiver, blood blood receiver, I think, uh, was it AB positive? Um, you can actually survive and be saved by a transfusion of pure cattle hemoglobin. The only animal that that, uh, that you can say that about. Pigs are close. Um, they're 99.9 to seven places match. Cattle are 99.9 to nine places. So it's just close enough so that uh, universal uh, – donor receiver can survive a transfusion of cattle hemoglobin. That is a clue right there. Okay. We are what we eat <laughs> literally. And so I also think there's an element of ritual sacrifice here. Um, you know, I'm the only one that really thinks this, all the other investigators, they don't want to go there, but uh, I think there's, there's a, there's something ritualistic about this. There's something almost occulted, uh, there's some aspect of ritual blood sacrifice that's operative, and I think that may tie into uh, whatever connecting link there may be between uh, David uh, Pilates' work and the 411 uh, missing work and uh, and cattle uh, mutilations. I, I, it's you know the further down the road I get, you know. Uh, the more I think that that might be a possibility, although I'm, I'm nowhere near uh, convinced enough to, to, you know, go there. That would really be troubling. <laughs> the question would be, do we have any way of responding? Is this a spiritual or a psychic kind of battle? I, I, I just... I, I, I don't have enough information to even speculate. Um, all I would say is... Uh, you know, with the um, advent of of GPS and, um, you know, the high-tech world is making it harder and harder to, uh, to uh, engage in this type of activity. Uh, and so I think um, I've all, often said over the years that at some point um, data is going to overwhelm the mysteries. And um, I think, you know, with the, the advent of, of real good uh, affordable uh, – um, surveillance technology, uh, both on the ground and 
aerial and up in space. Uh, I think that it's it's going to be more and more difficult to pull these types of things off. Uh, you know, having uh, having some sort of uh, GPS locator on you when you're hiking that's hidden in a place that can't be found on your body, whether it's subcutaneous or other other ways. Uh, you know, we might be going into that direction. <laughs> you just, you, you don't know, but I, I really don't have enough. Uh, it, 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 it would just be irresponsible of me to, to try to, you know, go beyond that. Is there anything else you want us to know about work you have coming up? Well, my, my UFO DAP project, which I'm very proud of, uh, it's historic. Uh, it's the first time somebody uh, has come up with a triangulated um, optical array that um, also has uh, recording scientific uh, instrumentation, uh, recording magnetometer, accelerometers, gravitometer, and RF spectrum analyzer, um, all these elements together with customized software that detects an event, uh, focuses on the event, triangulates with three cameras, and uh, goes into record mode, motion tracks uh, the event uh, with GPS on Google Maps. Um, this is this is the next uh, the next step forward in instrumented uh, UFO studies. I, I don't consider myself a ufologist, um, but I think you know because no other ufologist is doing it. Uh, I guess I have to. So um, I'm going ahead and with the help of Ron Olch, a uh, very talented uh, computer scientist, inventor, and, uh, and, and a really smart engineer. Um, he's uh, spent, he wrote 20,000, I think, lines of code, spent six years developing the software. Um, we're already selling um, very affordable uh, arrays around uh, the the country, and we have interest uh, from Switzerland, Italy, Australia, and we have a number of uh, of systems that have uh, uh, been sold. Um, if anybody out there is interested, at UFO D is in data, A is in acquisition, P is in project. So ufodap.com, and there's a store there, and we'll customize a system for your particular application. System started around four hundred and go up to about five thousand dollars. Full blown is about five grand. We're not making money on this. We're trying to get the systems out there so that we can have, uh, you know, multiple systems uh, gathering data and uh, around the world. We have a system going in next door to the Skinwalker Ranch. We have a system uh, that's already in up at the Wasatch, east of Salt Lake City. We have a system that's um, in San Pedro, southern L.A., looking out at Catalina Island. Uh, I'm going to be working with Kevin Day and the um, the UAPX expedition uh, uh, group that's going out to uh, Catalina and then Guadalupe Island where the Nimitz uh, UFO tic-tac encounters were. We're supplying equipment and some expertise for the that particular, uh, uh, you know, uh, effort and uh and so we're um i'm really proud of uh it's a 20-year uh vision uh, and you know 20 years ago would have cost almost a million dollars to do what we can do now for about five thousand. so um that's the one thing about technology that's wonderful uh you know I think at, at some point data is going to overwhelm these mysteries i really do maybe not during my lifetime but but soon after amazing Groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it's historic. It's it's not groundbreaking. It's historic. No one, the Hisdalen project uh, would be the only uh, you know thing that could compare. But I don't think they're triangulated there. Uh, I don't think they have three sets of instrumentation uh, like we do. Last question: What is your take on the Nimitz events, the Tic Tac encounters? Is that black budget or no? Well, I was I was working uh, out in uh, in uh, Sausalito with uh, James Fox, uh, helping him put his uh, theatrical released movie, The Phenomenon, to bed, uh, which is going to be the most important film ever produced in ufology. And uh, I was very, uh, uh, you know, 
honored uh, to be included uh, in that process. And I sat there for a day with Jacques Vallée going through the film uh, frame by frame, double checking and fact checking everything. And at one point I, as we were going through the section in the film that talks about the Nimitz and the Tic Tacs, I asked Jacques, I said, Jacques, what, you know, what do you think about this, this whole thing? And he looked at me, rolled his eyes, shrugged his shoulders and then shook his head. <laughs> and and I, I said, well, what's that supposed to mean? He goes, Oh, come on. And I thought, Whoa. So it, 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 I, maybe the air force punk in the Navy. I, I don't think it's what everybody thinks it is. I think it's way more terrestrial than, uh, than, uh, than they're, they're, they're trying to, it's the government trying to get ahead of, uh, of the UFO subject. Uh, they've, they've fallen behind in control of the subject. Government's job is control, control slash government. That's what they're about. And uh, they've lost control of the narrative. Uh, they've lost control of the conversation and so I think that they're going to slowly be allowing these, these, you know, I mean, come on. They got full color uh, footage, mm -hmm. gun camera footage or whatever of those objects. Why not release the good stuff? Why release the 70s uh, quality, you know, IR footage and, uh, you know, crappy, you know, could be interpreted this way or that way. Let's see the good stuff, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so I, I, it's all, it's all, it, it's game playing. How's that? <laughs> Do you feel like they've gotten to a place with black budget tech, which has put them into parody with the paranormal variety? I think it's way ahead of, I think we have several aces in the hole that we're not going to allow to come out because our conventional tech is, is better than anybody else's pretty much. So why, why show the good stuff, you know, until you really need it. Uh, so I, I, I really think that uh, we've been, yeah, there's six trillion dollars missing from the Pentagon. Hello. <laughs> so the Department of Defense or whatever. Uh, I think it's four trillion. Yeah. Once you get into the trillions, uh, I, I, what was it? Uh, September 10th, 2000, uh, 2001, you know, it was a 9, 10, uh, 2001, the day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, did a press conference and announced the uh, uh, the results of his uh, audit of the Defense Department, and he said that there's 4.2 trillion dollars that are not where they're supposed to be, and a lot of that's a lot of that's missing. We haven't figured out how much is missing, but as it turned out, it was actually more. It was closer to six trillion uh, has has been uh, spent somewhere. A lot of it's on underground facilities, uh, and some of it, I think, has gone into uh, anti-grav and uh, possibly time uh, compression technology and other things, invisibility, cloaking uh, technology. There's a lot of things that, uh, you know, people people undersell uh, and under under uh, appreciate the human ingenuity. We have a lot of smart people on this planet, a lot smart people and you get a lot of smart people together working on a on a problem um other than back engineering a flying saucer which i don't think they're going to be able to do they, they haven't been able to do it up to this point if there is that kind of um you know physical evidence that they've been working with uh it's it's pretty uh it's it's pretty amazing the ingenuity of humans and uh i i, I think we you know, the general public that doesn't know any better, the, the great unwashed masses sell uh, human ingenuity far short. The pyramids, uh, you know, some of the ancient uh, monuments and stuff and megaliths. Uh, I think humans, humans uh, have a way of making things happen. And we, 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 I think we, we get a little uh, uh, remiss, I think, in, in thinking that something has got to be the ancient aliens. It's got to be aliens, this and that. If, if, if It just astounds me that anybody thinks something from out there would come to this primitive, misogynist, violent, primitive place and, and have any interest in it. 
I, I think if anything, there's a sign saying, stay away. Uh, you know, it's restricted airspace. Do not go here. Uh, I think the biodiversity on the planet is way more interesting than the one life form that's destroying that biodiversity. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm very conservative when it comes to um, a lot of this stuff. For more on Christopher O'Brien, visit Our Strange Planet and UFODAP.com. Filming his concert picture, Rainbow Bridge, in 1970, Jimi Hendrix had a seminal encounter with a UFO. It occurred on the island of Maui. Hendrix and a group of people, including musician Merrill Funkhauser, were hiking on a volcanic crater at 10,000 feet when out of the azure tropical skies, a silver disc appeared over a cinder cone nearby. Hendrix walked into the cinder field of the lava flow and according to witnesses shouted, welcome space brothers to the silver disc overhead. Corroborating reports of the event poured into area radio stations. Remarkable as the sighting in Maui was, it pales in comparison to an encounter Hendrix and his band had in 1965, which purportedly saved all their lives. As recounted in the book Alien Rock, in 1965, Hendrix and his band were near Woodstock in New York. According to band member Curtis Knight, the band was trapped in a blizzard in fact, the worst blizzard he could ever recall. It was four in the morning. Their vehicle had become trapped in a snowbank. As they began to shake desperately in the freezing cold, a glowing craft of conical shape descended. It landed in the snow nearby and illuminated the area. The band was terrified. From the craft emerged a tall being. It floated toward their vehicle and melted the snow clearing a path for their escape. It came beside the window where Hendrix was seated and apparently communicated with him telepathically. Knight says it was as though the rest of the band was in a hypnotic trance. The road was cleared. The being and the craft departed. Hendrix and his band lived to tell the tale. Although Curtis Knight added that Jimi Hendrix, quote, sort of let me know that the cool thing was not to bring up the subject. It was to be our little secret. Enchanted Patreon, sensual patrons, passionate StuartDavis.com, love Patreon sex patrons, fleshly StuartDavis.com, enlightenment Patreon, carnal patrons, naked Patreon, nude, stuartdavis.com, peace, Patreon, fulfillment, patrons, insight, stuartdavis.com, manhood, Patreon, womanliness, patrons, erotic, stuartdavis.com, heavy petting, Patreon, non-duality, patron, chasm, spasm, orgasm, stuartdavis.com.
flesh on fire if it means a little proof Don't let these phrases just float up and hit the roof Cause in this room where I think answering belongs It always shifts and sounds a question twice as strong and I say Chosen air.